Okay, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Yaron Weitzman, who is a Bleacher Report NBA writer. Uh, he just has a book published called Tanking to the Top about the Philadelphia 76ers and the Trust the Process. So, Yaron, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so before we get into the book, where did the term trust the process come? Like where how, we hear that term now, everybody uses it, not just related to basketball, but everyone's using it. But where did that term trust the process start? Um, it actually started. It's funny. Um, it's yeah, Sam Hinkie, right? He never said that. Um, it came from, uh, it came from an ESPN magazine story. It was a quote from a veteran on the team named Tony, Ro- excuse me, not a veteran, a backup point guard. There were no veterans on those teams. But a backup point guard named um, Tony Roden and the ESPN writer said, uh, named Pablo Torre, kind of asked him about like what was going on. It was a story on the process. It wasn't yet known as the process, right? And um, and the writer and Tony Roden said, you know, they just keep telling us, don't worry about the results. I forget exactly what he said, but just trust the process. And uh, people loved it, and it kind of symbolized everything that they were about. And a couple of podcast hosts, local podcast hosts, and. Philadelphia, who are big Sixers fans, um, sort of took it and ran with it and put it on T-shirts and billboards and whatever, and it became this rallying cry. It's pretty funny. So, I mean, I had Mark Levowitz on the book who wrote the book, The Big Game, and he talked about mm-hmm. how he was getting interviews with Brady and uh, Goodell and how difficult it was. Now, he actually got these interviews, but it was like asking and right. requesting. And I, I, I love, in your book, you were like, okay, I'm going to just write about the Philadelphia 76ers. And you'd think, well, you'd be able to talk to the general manager and everybody. But it was difficult. Like, you, it was almost as like, like you were reporting on nuclear secrets or something to get anybody from the organization and Hinky himself to even talk to you. Yeah, very strange. I don't know how to describe. Again, very strange thing. So I'm, I'm a writer. Like and I'm big. I'm not just saying this. Like I'm not somebody who believes that. You know, for the most part, like just because I decide to write a book on you doesn't mean you or a story or anything, right? Doesn't mean you owe it to me to talk, right? Like I'm not somebody like you don't owe me anything. Um, that said, <laughs> there are times when you usually people participate, and you know you get get surprised by the way people act, and like. So again, so we'll, we'll say Sam Hinkie, right? Uh, I, I wasn't so surprised. I knew he would say no right away, um, which he did, politely, that we had a nice, polite conversation. He explained why. Um, I half understood because Hinkie, I don't necessarily understand everything he's saying. I mean, you do, but, like, you don't. It's a Silicon Valley talk, right, like the way they talk. Um, so him, I understood. I kind of thought I would break him eventually, right, that, like, usually what happens is they hear – You've reached out to their uncle and their neighbor and their cousin and all, you know, and it gets back and it's finally like, okay, fine. Um, him, he never did. Fine. The Sixers, on the other hand, I was very surprised because, like, it wasn't they, – they do they do interviews with people, right? Hinky doesn't do interviews, so that's fine. The Sixers do, like, you know, Joel Embiid has, like, you know, I joke about it because I joke that they give the red carpet to ESPN and no one else. Um and, like, you know, Joel Embiid on Media Day this year does, like, three one-on-one interviews with ESPN, right? But I won't get one with him for a book. Or the coach, you know, will go on podcast, stuff like that. They just wouldn't do it with me. And they didn't want – they basically, they didn't want this book written. Um, and that's, like, part because of me, part not. Not because of me. You know, this the idea that they have this strange relationship with the process. They're a little embarrassed by it. So I make fun because they're embarrassed by it, but then they trademark trust the process recently so they can make money off of it. So <laughs> I guess God bless, cap- God bless capitalism, right? Um, but the uh, but no, it's very stressful. Like they would call up former employees and remind them that like the NDAs they signed, you know, <laughs> apply to uh, 
doing interviews for books. Like one player told me that the team told him no book related interviews, stuff like that. It was really, really strange. And I, I, to be honest, I don't like, I don't get the PR strategy. I get why you say no at first, if you don't want it. Um, but as I explained to them once, you know, a book deal, the way it works is like, you can't squat, you can't, you can't, you know, push it away. Like a book's coming out. It's up to you guys, whether you want to have a say or anything in there or not. Well, the, the thing about the Sixers is that, and you, just spell it out in detail by going back. I mean, you didn't just jump into the hinky years. You actually said, where were the Sixers? And they, they were owned by Ed Snyder, who have Comcast, and so they wanted to have contents, and they were in that, quote, stuck-in-the-middle level where they were getting drafting in the 12th, the 12th pick in the draft. Instead of being, you're either going to be at the tippy-top like the Warriors or you're going to be horrendous. And you're not being in the middle is the worst spot, and that's where they were. And so they drafted, like, Thaddeus Young instead of in the same draft that Kevin Durant went. And so you're talking about in those years in terms of how they just played for the middle. But when Josh Harris bought the team, who was a private equity guy, equity guy, and he brings in other people who are in private equity. The whole mindset of how they viewed this team changed from being just we're, we're just we just need to fill the seats, we just need to have an okay team. They they came in with a whole different mindset. Correct, and it was smart. Like I think you know, I you know, you can make fun of ownership, Sixers ownership, and find your faults with them a lot. But that was um, they were correct about that, right? And it's easy to make fun of the finance guys a lot, especially in how they go about these teams. But some of the things they bring to the world of professional sports are, I think, like make this sport make sports better often, right? Analytical thinking, critical, a different level of critical thinking. And uh, no, they were right, right? The team had plateaued, and they correctly assessed that some kind of major change needed to happen for the team to not only win a championship but also become like a major brand, right? Right, and then and then just the background. I mean, it seemed like it was 2012. You had the funny story about it. They, they wanted to, they gave one last attempt to make this team get better. They traded for Bynum, Andrew Bynum. If people remember from the Lakers, and he and he got hurt. He never played because he got hurt bowling. Uh, that difficult. Right. So, but then they after the years over, they fire Collins, who said, "I hate analytics," and they they decided to go all in on analytics. So why why how did Hinky get the job? Like Sam Hinky was sort of off the radar. I mean, no one was really talking about Sam Hinky like they do now. What made them want to hire Sam? Hinky to give their entire operation to? So he had actually interviewed for the job the year before, him and a couple other more, we'll call them analytically inclined people. Um, and Doug Collins had a major say in the organization, and none of those people wanted to work in an organization where Doug Collins had a major say. Um, I think they basically saw, like, the team, you know, the Bynum trade, like, it all blew up. And I think they're kind of, I think ownership kind of discovered, they came in, it's like Doug Collins is sort of this larger than life for this big-time NBA character, and it's easy to be wooed by him, right? It makes sense. Like, he's a famous guy who's going to tell you good basketball stories. Like, that's pretty cool, right, <laughs> if you're not a guy from the NBA. Um, and by a certain point, it's like, okay, let's, let's start doing more of, let's, let's look at this, let's approach this in a way similar to how, how we approach our day jobs. And Sam Hinkie, you know, the language used for a few people, like, you know, he spoke their language, right? So at the end, towards that season, they started, they started rebuilding, or not even rebuilding, they started building up an analytical, an analytic side of the organization, and they realized they wanted a guy who could, like, the thing about Hinkie and the teardown, and he's called, you know, people, and myself included, refer to him as the architect of the process, but, like, the example, the analogy I go, I give is, you know, if you hire, like the way it works, it's like you, you're renovating a house, you hire an architect, the architect is carrying out your vision still, right? Like it's not like Sam Hinkie came to them with this idea they never heard of. This was kind of all decided together. Well, you mentioned how like private equity, I mean, it's, I, I'm a business background, so I just liked how you talk about the private equity guys are like they take over companies and then they strip everything Correct. down and they whatever. So it was like they were just applying private equity principles to the Philadelphia yes. 76ers. Yes, they waited a couple of years, but it's like, okay, let's get to it. This didn't work. You know what I mean? Let's, let's, do, our, let's do our thing here. 
this is how we usually are successful. So they bring in, and then Hinky decides to bring in his coach, Brett Brown. And you spent a lot of time talking about Brett Brown and just an interesting character. I mean, he played for Patino at Boston University, and then he goes to Australia and is just like walking around Australia and New Zealand and then somehow got into basketball. It was just, just, a, just a quixotic journey of his career. Yeah, for sure, right? He was somebody, and I think at some point, he didn't think he was going to be an NBA head coach. And he was happy about He was happy about it. You know, he didn't think he would be one. And in the end, like, getting the Australian the job as the Australian national team head coach was the major thing for him, right? That kind of made him realize that he had a shot at, you know, this different sort of career. Yeah, and then, and then so in two, the first year, they were picked to win 17 games. And I remember, now we're, you know, down here with Miami, uh, and uh, they, were, they beat the Heat the first game of the season, the defending champions with LeBron James yeah. and Dwayne Wade. And you're like, yeah. wait, this team is supposed to be terrible. They're going to only win 17 games, and they just beat the defending champions, of the Miami Heat, who had just beat the Thunder. So, uh, so it goes into that. And then suddenly, then they, then they ended up losing 26 out of 30 at 19 games, and, and sort of like everything sort of fell off the rails that year. But they didn't, they were, they didn't panic. They actually weren't upset about losing all these games. No, for sure not. Like Hinky, that's like he he thought it was important. He thought it was important to draw to draw a line between him and the coaching staff, right? In terms of in terms of sorry, you got my daughter yelling in the background. I that's okay. That's okay. self self quarantine life here, right? <laughs> um, in terms of uh, into, <laughs> no one's going to sleep. No one's going to sleep. Don't worry. Um, sorry. In terms of he drawing a line between him and the organization, him and the coaching staff, in terms of like. And this ended up coming back to bite them a little bit, right? But, like, they have different incentives, right? The idea that the coaching staff wants to win every day, we do not. And he thought, and he's probably a little wrong, but he thought because of that it would be important to almost not hang around the team so frequently because it would just be, you know, if you want different things, he thought it would be unfair if he was around or if he'd be involved like that. He thought it would put the coaching staff in an unfair position. So then the 2014 draft, that's who the, the, one of the anchors of the process, per se, is Joel Embiid. And the story about Embiid was tremendous. I mean, you really bring these players out. I mean, stuff that I didn't know from Cameroon. In fact, that he grew up in a privileged, you know, people thought he grew up in, on the, in, the, uh, in the desert or something in Cameroon. Well, he actually was, grew up in a privileged background, didn't start playing basketball until he was like 16, 17 years old. But uh, got injured in a in a workout, and so he dropped a third. And yeah. and they knew he was almost not going to play that next year, but they still drafted him anyway. In terms of knowing that no. it's okay that, to sit out a year. No, they knew that him. They had two lottery picks that year, and they both him and this guy Dario Saric, who they knew would be overseas for two years, right? And they didn't take either of them. And they're like, you know, I have someone, I, I have an anecdote in there. I think it was an assistant coach who told me the story. Like they were in Brett Brown's office after, and you know. Everyone knew what the deal was, but this made it crystal clear in terms of, like, what's going on, right? Like, Brett Brown turning to the assistant, where you just had two lottery picks, both used on guys who won't play this year, and maybe even more, and turning to the assistant and being like, so what does this mean for us by half? You know, it's a rhetorical question he knew. So that, that draft really like, symbolized and set up that, oh, this is, this is different than anything we've ever seen. Like, we've seen rebuilds in the past, but to use two lottery picks on guys – who will not be playing that season? Um, yeah, it might literally, literally be unheard of. But then you mentioned how the Sixers. I guess the one thing they did poor, you know, poorly was with Noel, New Orleans Noel, the year before, and with Embiid. Is that they these players? You have these superstar players that aren't going to play the whole year. But then they got disillusioned. They got heavy. They're not working out. They're causing problems. And it's Brett Brown doesn't want to to reprimand them, and Hickey didn't want to reprimand them. So it just became a continuing problem. We have all these superstars, young players that are just causing problems on the team. 
Yeah, no, for sure. It's, I kind of call it the original sin for them a little bit. It's And, like, I feel – I don't know what the answer is, right? Because, like, I'm, I'm not somebody who is pro a Bobby Knight-style head coach, right, where, like, discipline, like, that kind of thing, where you should be yelling and screaming and throwing chairs at people to discipline players or stuff like that. Um, but on the other hand, like, there's some kind of it factor that's supposed to – some kind of it factor that's supposed to help – that's supposed to help in terms of – and so it's supposed to help in terms of, I'm sorry, it's supposed to help in terms of um, how you get players to buy in, right? How you get players to realize what you're doing. And it's just Brett Brown always missed out on that one, right? So Noel Hartman, like, he would say, we find him hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And then nothing happened. And yet, <laughs> for some reason, there was always this issue that these guys just, I don't know. It's, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Again, like Greg Popovich would say that Tim Duncan lets him, like, let him coach him. And just that was the difference. But on the other hand, it's just, I don't know, it never, I don't know, never happened. So we're talking to your own Weitzman from Tanking to the Top. This is Iron Sports on 95.9, Um So the second year, they go 18 and 64, uh, another terrible year. But the point is that at that time now, people are starting to not like Sam Hinkie, being that the agents, you talked about how agents couldn't stand him. The general, other general managers were furious at him, and the team ownerships were mad because they were putting in this horrendous product on the, on the court. Nobody's going to their games. And suddenly now this blowback, it's not just, okay, one year we're going to have a rebuild. Like, this is actually a problem that people didn't start. And Hinkie didn't, you mentioned in the book that he didn't care that everybody hated him. It didn't really bother him. But no, he knew it would happen, right? He knew, like, I have an anecdote where he's told, he's asking for a restaurant recommendation and says, uh, I need a place where I can sneak out the back door because everyone in the city is going to hate me. You know, and he knew that would happen. Um, but just, yeah, it just, it's, it's like he kind of felt like he was saving fans from themselves, right? He felt like he knew, you know, they don't know how to, they, we all want the same thing. They don't know how to best do it. Um, this, this is like, they're going to hate me for a couple of years, but he believes in the work, right? He believes in the end, the work would pay off. In the end, agents would see, you know, the players would want to come and everything would pay off. And I think, I think he definitely did. He underestimated the political aspect of it, right? How much that matters and how much keeping your job and keeping yourself employed matters. <laughs> yes. And then you, and then what happened in 2015 is that you said, like, there was optimism, like Embiid was going to be back that next year. Sark was maybe one year later that they might have everybody coming back. They had this, the third pick in the draft, like everything looked good. But then Embiid hurts his foot in a, he was dominating in a pr- scrimmage one time, then hurts his foot. Then he's going to be out another year. And then they draft. I loved how you, they were, you showed how they were trying to draft Persingas, but Persingas' agent didn't want Persingas to ever play for the Sixers. So he was totally avoiding every meeting. It's like, it was funny. <laughs> That in that book about that, and they had drafted Okafor from Duke instead. No, and that, I mean that story is kind of emblematic, right? Like, you know, if they had, but it shows a gray area because there's the other side. That part of the reason Porzingis didn't want to work out there that he wouldn't is because he shared an agent with Nerlens Noel. Um, and like, if you're an agent, you have two top five um, centers on the same. You don't want them on the same team, right? That creates all sorts of issues, right? The other part, though, is that, no, Hinky did not have a good relationship with the agent, and because he doesn't have a good relationship, that's not an honest back and forth, and he misses the workout, and maybe, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't have drafted him, but maybe if he works Porzingis out, you know, and I have a story where, like, they're watching some staffers come down and see Porzingis in a, uh, they try to bring Porzingis down to Philly, and they hear him in a bathroom basically pretending to throw off, right? He's right. Pretending he has I mean, I guess I can't say pretending, but, you know, they hear vomiting noises coming from the bathroom. How about that? Um, but, uh, you know, but maybe if he does get in the workout, maybe he sees something. Like, Hinky was big on everything to data point. So maybe he sees some data point there that shows, oh, this is actually the guy. Like, this guy is different. 
So, I mean, so he's still getting these draft picks, but then the Okafor draft pick, I mean, again, drafting three people at the same positions, but then you have another problem that, I mean, I guess Okafor, you're sort of point to as the downfall of Inky because Okafor was getting into fights and was just becoming a big problem, even though he wasn't hurt, he was just causing problems. And then suddenly now Harris and the ownership group of the Sixers are sort of like, we've given you two years, you're in the third year, there's no improvement. And they brought in a CEO. It just seemed like that was the year that, I mean, of course it was, but it, but it was, that's when it started just to slip away from Hinky and running the team. Yeah, it's kind of, I described it like he was sort of in that, like there's like, I hate the cliche, but like the straw that broke the camel's back type thing, right? Like he's in the middle of 40 different storms, you know, going on. And the Okafor saga is kind of the one that breaks it, right? Like whether it's opposed, the owners aren't happy, his owners realizing that, oh, we actually don't, it's not fun owning an NBA team that everyone hates, right? It's kind of the whole point of owning an NBA team is supposed to be fun. And, you know, your buddies like you and, like, when your billionaire buddies who own other teams are complaining and, like, the league's not happy and Sixers' business side of things aren't happy and agents aren't happy and all this stuff going on and just the noise can become too great. So they decide to make the move and they, they well, they bring Jerry Colangelo in and then it's sort of like the writing on the tail to get rid of him. And then I thought the book was going to end there, but I loved how the fact that you continued, the fact that Hinky wrote that resignation letter, I think, what, a 20-page resignation letter to, to, the, to the owners of why. crazy. And uh, and then so Brian Coangelo, but I mean he's almost as entertaining as Hinky was in terms of I mean he drafted uh, Simmons uh, Ben Simmons with the number one pick, but then another I mean they are just the experts at drafting players that are the number one pick and then get hurt. It's just crazy. And then so he's hurt the rest of the year. Uh, but that was just like and that was just a mess in terms of Colangelo running that team that year. Yeah, they picked. Um... Yeah, I, going back to my research, and like I found these, these, I'll say great, that's the wrong word, maybe illuminating quotes on uh, Brian Colangelo, like, you know, that back when his father hired him in the early 90s, I guess it was, in Phoenix, and he's talking about how, like, he's aware of the charge of nepotism and it bothers him. And, like, you take that guy, and back then, like, the guy's been trying to fight against that his entire life, and you drop him into a situation where, one, once again, it's his father's team, right? So that's there, and he's following in this guy's footsteps where he's like a cult following, and his footprints are all over the team, and the shadow's looming over it. It just is not a good mix. Looking back, it, you know, it's easy to say that, but I, I'm surprised. I don't know. It feels like something we could have all been aware of. It should have been more obvious probably, right, and everyone makes sense that how combustible the situation was with him taking over, with that guy taking over. And then you get back into another draft with the 17 where they have the, they have the number three pick, but they go and they, they draft up the trade to get Markel Fultz. So they give up all, another number one pick just to move up two spots, whereas the Celtics wanted Jason Tatum and were happy to drop down to three. Like they were, they were ecstatic. That's who the player they were going to draft. So they picked up, they got the player they wanted to move down. And then the whole Fultz thing, I mean, you really went into detail what happened with that. I mean, that, it was just, amazing that a guy could be picked number one in the NBA draft and can't shoot the basketball. Just crazy story. No, it's one of the weirdest stories we've seen, right, in sports. Like, we've seen it in baseball, but not in basketball. Um, and, like, I think, yeah, the folks thing, there's a bunch of things. Like, one, and I, you know, we know this, but we forget, like, most number one picks are kind of groomed for that. He also was playing JV basketball still as a 15-year-old. Like, he went from that within two and a half years to becoming a number one pick. That's a lot for him and a family and a circle to take. Um, to encounter, and it's just, I think it led to a lot of different stresses and with him, with his family. Like, I have stories in there about his mom, his best friend, his manager kind of getting in fights, um, arguments, and you kind of, again, you don't know that A leads to B, but it does lend some context into, okay, maybe this shows some insight into what exactly happened here. 
We're talking to Yaron Weitzman tanking to the top just a few more minutes. Um, and then the one story that's probably of all this, I mean, every story is crazy in the book. This whole team is a mess. Yeah. And then to top it off, you have Brian Crangelo getting his yeah. downfall yeah. because he had five fake Twitter accounts and he was using them to undermine people who were criticizing him. I mean, it's just just an amazing story to give a sort of description about your research. I mean, I heard about this, but you really spelled it out exactly why, why a GM of a basketball team was using fake Twitter accounts. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Forget that. Try explaining to a fact checker and a copy editor. Like, for this, compiling that whole that whole chapter is one of the weirdest things I've ever done. Having to synthesize like all those tweets and everything into like coherent paragraphs and just like explain it and just like explain what was going on um, and try to synthesize all that and explain to people how like no uncone like you know one of the Twitter handles was unknown sources except it was mistyped so it was spelled as uncone and having to explain to my to my copy editors like no leave the typo uncone is correct it was just the strangest thing and again it goes back to what i was saying in hindsight it makes sense i guess but like you know it's the guy clearly cares so much about what people think and it's you know and again it was just such a combustible situation wow so I mean, and then we're stuck with this current day Sixers. I mean, we're lucky we're down here in, my, in Miami, and you've, you've, you've detailed how Jimmy Butler has bounced around and didn't find, you know, he was miserable in Chicago, miserable in Minnesota, miserable in Philadelphia, and it seems like he's found a home here in, in Miami, finally. I mean, he's now on his fourth team, and it's like, this. Well, hopefully this lasts long, but it, he fits out well. So, But I guess the big question is, for someone who studied this team, is will Simmons and Embiid, will this ever work? I mean, they had a chance. They've, they've only won in all their time, Two playoff series. That's it. I mean, last year they lost to Toronto in that great Game Seven, tremendous ending. But they, but really, what is the future with the Sixers with Simmons, Embiid, and Brett Brown? Yeah, I think Brett Brown's in trouble. I think it's fair to say that um, with Simmons and Embiid, it's the roster construction around them this year was uh, like I think the Al Horford deal would be the example, right? Like they made some mistakes. Um, they're not, be- you know, everyone wants to know about their relationship. Uh, they're not best friends. The example I give, though, is I think it's kind of like the college roommate who, you know, you go to appreciate or at least have some sort of respect for after all those years, even though they might get on your nerves sometimes, right? Um, the on-court fit is the problem, is the question. But, like, it's a fascinating question because the fit is not great, but sometimes talent wins, and I just I, – this is not a cop meant to be a cop out. I just really wanted to see what those two would look like with, like, shooters around them and guys who could handle the ball and, like, a modern roster – around them and they have not done that and that might be i'm not gonna say a downfall i'm i'm curious to see if when if the nba ever returns um like what the what the way out of this would be wow and, and since you since your book that the tanking to the top i mean we've had a lot of authors on our show in this time this is a great book to read uh, you can order on amazon uh, either the pdf copy or the hard copy what has been the response? I mean, the book's been out for a few weeks. Have you got any response from Sixers, from Hinky's friends? Uh, any response from people in terms of... of, of, of... <laughs> no, I'll sorry. It's funny you say that. I think the Sixers are still going to pretend it doesn't exist. I don't know. Now, again, this all came out because my luck, right? And, you know, obviously, Wharton has a million more things. It came out at a time when everyone has other things on their minds, right? So, like, it's not like I'm going to a Sixers game right now. You know, it's not the Um so I'm not running into, you know, for example, Brett Brown, right? Um, people around the NBA have seen, have, uh, no, people around the NBA enjoy it. I think I think there's some shot in Freud in there, right? I, I guess I, uh, I'm not going to say I take some shots, but there's some, you know, I, I laid out some things on the Sixers. I think that's fair to say, right? And I think all journalistically fair and all that, but, um, 
you know, some things we don't want to say see or read about NBA teams a lot. Um, no, I'm still waiting. I'm curious. So I'm, you know, I'm, that's a long-winded answer. I'm very curious to see, like, what happens the next time I go to a Sixers game, whenever that will be, right? I'm very uh, – well, next time I see Brett Brown or this team's CEO, Scott O'Neill, who I'm, you know, out there a little bit in the book. Um, as for Hinky, I have not heard anything. And to be honest, I do not expect to. So. Do you think do you think anyone will ever give Hinky another job, or is he done? I mean, it's amazing. He goes to the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference, and he's like a rock star, and everybody knows about yeah. him. But it's like he'll never he'll never get another job in the NBA again, even though he's viewed as this genius. Well, it's not. I think that it's it, it, the it's both, right? The teams he'd be willing to work for. It's the teams who'd be willing to hire him and take a shot. There's also the teams he'd be willing to work for and the ownership groups he'd be willing to work for. And if you like combine those lists, if you like have a Venn diagram, the middle circle, the list in the middle circle is really, really short, right? If anything, and he, he felt betrayed by ownership in this one. He felt they were all on the same page. They thought, they thought alike, you know, they looked at things similarly. And when they kind of pulled the rug out on, pulled the rug out under him, I think that, um, I don't know if he's willing to deal with that again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Yaron. I really appreciate it. I know this is a, a difficult time, and, it, and it's a book. If you guys, you know, everyone, we talk sports on our show because, I, I again, we just cannot watch the news every single moment of the day. And, <laughs> and, you get, yeah. and, and just escape yourself in a book, and, and it's, it's, it's phenomenal, and, and just and read the book. And it's, it's like one of those books. I mean, I, I have a friend. I got a friend of mine from Philly who has a high school kid, and they're reading the book together. And it's great because they're talking oh, about it. Great. They're reading it, and they're, they're reading, like, you know, they said they're reading 50 pages a day, and then they talk about it at dinner so it gives them something to talk about so i think it's great i'm glad this book came out uh thank you for writing it and, and i appreciate you coming on i run sports no i'm going to add that to my uh, tagline i'm bringing families together and i thank you for having me and i apologize to you and uh listeners for the uh kids in the background no the, uh, no that's phenomenal that's that is a difficult one. <laughs> no that's great that's great you saw it in the book how you got hinky in an interview he wouldn't walk away and you started talking about his kids and then that sort of got that's you another move. another move, yeah. another, five, <laughs> another five more minutes with him but thanks a lot you for coming on thank you for having me i truly appreciate it